Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. song just makes me want to dance. Good morning, radiotherapists. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I am Dr. Doodlittle, and we have a lot to discuss this morning. Joining us in the studio is Associate Professor Asan Valley, who is an epidemiologist from La Trobe University, who recently wrote an article in The Conversation about how to make sense of news articles about science and health. And with a bit of luck, he can turn the gibberish of radiotherapy into Nobel Prize-worthy information. (laughs) On the panel this morning, we also have Cyber Sue, our nurse with a passion for the digital world. Cyber Sue is going to tell us about the cyber attacks that hit hospitals this week. That was my dramatic voice. (laughs) And also in the studio this morning is the panel beater. He's the Gough Whitlam of radiotherapy. He's tall, he's principal, (laughs) he's knowledgeable... And possibly just a little bit too smart for the position he finds himself in. Mm. Today he continues his theme of exploring self-help this week with reference to social media. So let's get this show on the road, starting with the news. Okay, gang. Firstly, let's say g'day to you. Do we call you Hass? Do we call you Professor? What do we call you? Um, everyone calls me Hass. So I'm happy with that. Let's go with Hass, but we'll keep reminding everyone that you are the Prof. Professor Hass. from La Trobe University. Um, thanks for coming in. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be here. Are you a local? Did you have to travel far? I had to travel up the road. I live in Brunswick. So oh. Fantastic. Oh, you lucky people. Although, you know, I've moved to Carlton. So I only have to travel just a little bit further up the road now. I'm loving it. Well, so, I, but, I had to travel through the uh, Melbourne Marathon this morning. Oh, because you come from St Kilda. Kilda. Exactly. I remember an article you once wrote about St Kilda. That's right. Um, 
All good. Did you have any trouble getting through the Melbourne Marathon? Well, I had to detour quite a bit. Did and, you knock um, any of them over? <laughs> and I was in a car too rather than the motorbike, so that was annoying. Like, traffic is a drag. Oh, you need yeah. motorbikes to do yeah, that. Hey, do. and someone uh, – oh, you know, here's me. You've triggered a news item that I don't know the details. Um, you, you know, that world champion marathon runner who broke the two hours yesterday in an unofficial marathon. Pretty good. Do you know his name, um, Panobeta? Yeah, uh, Kilpachi. Is that right? Kilpachi? Um, Sounds cop, cop, cop. We'll look it up. We'll yeah. look it up. We'll get, I shouldn't have raised something that I don't know. But the gist is, you know, being I asked someone this morning, what does it mean an unofficial Kipchoggi. time? Kipchoggi. Yeah. An unofficial time means that it wasn't a proper marathon and, or he had paces. So he had people running, you know, with him at various stages, keeping him up on the relevant pace. Pretty amazing, mm-hmm. though. A marathon in two hours. Maybe that's what we need. If we just if we had our paces, we'd be a lot better. If I had a pacer, I'd do a marathon in two hours. That's right. I mean, look, I've never run a marathon myself, so I don't know if I could do it in two hours. I mean, I assume I probably You've could. Never failed, I've never then. tried. I've yeah. never tried, but yeah. I assume it couldn't be that hard. Hey, um, what really annoyed me was: Have you seen any of the video footage of it? No. He crosses the line, waving to the crowd, full of energy. Oh. Looks like he's ready to go and do another lap of it. Unbelievable. Yeah, he didn't even pretend to be tired. I wonder what the limits of human um, endeavour is when it comes to some of these sports. You know. I was, t- I was actually sp- I was speaking to someone over breakfast who's an ex-professional athlete um, and I was asking her, you know, what she thinks about it all. And she said, you know, we were talking about this idea that, you know, pretty much, you know, only certain people obviously are lucky enough to be born up one end of the spectrum and have all the right physical attributes for their sport. Like the s- everyone in this room, right? Yeah, like yeah. four of us obviously, but excluding, you know, probably not all of the listeners, but most, <laughs> given they're triple R people. But then on top of that, the science is pretty spread throughout the world now. So everyone knows how to train. But this big unknown factor is still the psychology. Mm. You know, it, the, no one quite knows how to lift people to get their peak performance on any individual day, and and so that's still that's still the wild card. And people are toying with uh, the link to mindfulness, right, and conscientization, and you know tapping what consciousness means and being able to envisage and visualise your performance, but right? But that stuff changes every five years. You know, yeah. this now it's visualising. You know, in the next five years, who knows? In past five years, it was being aggressive. It was putting this, oh, you know, who knows? I yeah. call it the can I be bothered factor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why am I doing this? Yeah, Cause, you know, <laughs> really? Because I vaguely recall that I'm a psychiatrist by training, but I think it's all, you know, and there's not much... There's not much to the whole field. <laughs> anyway, hey, before I slam my own profession too much, let's hit some news. Why don't we start with you, Cyber Sue, and this hospital attack? Yeah, sure. Well, um, September 30th it happened and um, big um, what they call a ransomware attack around the Barwon region and Gippsland reason. I always call it Gippsland. Gippsland. Mm, I think it's Gippsland, Gippsland, just like my gibberish or gibberish. <laughs> And, um, yeah, basically it's like a malware that attacked the servers for um, not patient information but emails and hard drives and so on for staff and um, basically shut them down. Um, And a lot of them are still shut down. They're still coming back on board. So um, out of action, no emails, emails bouncing, anything that was online, they they can't use the internet. So quite a radical impact that it's having on the staff in those regions. Did it? Um, um, yeah. did, did was there any privacy breach? Did they steal any names or phone numbers or you well, know stuff that people really freak yeah, out about? They, they, they claim no. So there's this um, kind of group called the um, Cyber Incident Response Service, which is a um, Victorian government thing that started in um, August of last year, mm-hmm. like 14 months ago, and they look into all of these cyber attacks. And there's a spy group of, including the federal police and so on, that look into. It. Apparently, the interest isn't in personal data. It's 
um, basically jamming them so that they put out this ransom for money. So what they're interested in money is not patient information. So did they do? Did they do that? Did they try and bribe them? Did they do the old, you know, if you don't um, pay, you know, fifty thousand dollars in Bitcoin to this yeah. number, and I conveniently provide you a VR code? Yeah. <laughs> Did they do all that? Well, that's how it is. And I mean, I don't know whether they did that, but that's the idea of it. It's called a ransomware and that's the absolute intention of it. So as yeah. in the response, there's been 600 since July 2018. Yeah. 600. And they're yeah. largely um, targeting public institutions now. Yeah. So the big change in this uh, area with ransomware, it used to be um, the hackers would send out emails and you'd inadvertently click a link or you yeah. get a text message and click a link. Now they're targeting institutions. They're doing fewer, but targeting institutions, not necessarily even going in through um, uh, email. They're going through software. So the Victorian Cyber um, Incident um, Unit was set up, and they haven't said whether these ones in um, Victoria, there's 22, 23 of them, haven't said whether they're, um, uh, there is actually money involved. However, what we do know is that Already in 2019, there have been over 50 hospitals in the United States that have been targeted mm. by the same ransomware, and they wow. are and they mm. are all for money. Mm. And of course, what's going to be interesting to watch unfold here is that hospitals in the United States overwhelmingly private, and hospitals here overwhelmingly public. So Barwon Health has been targeted, Gippsland, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how a private hospital who probably has private insurance responds to ransom. Um, and it's often Bitcoin, by the way. It's another yeah. little um, angle. Um, and how a state government responds. So at the moment, the Victorian state government hasn't declared where the money's involved yet. But has do you have this at the universities? Yeah, look, I was just thinking. I was just thinking as you were um, talking about that. So I went to ANU. That was one of the institutions yep. that I studied at. And they've also been attacked. Um, they've also been attacked and... Um, one of the things that's a little bit different about what they're telling us is that they think the motivation for that attack was to get the personal information of people of influence who have studied at ANU. So they think it was very targeted to... Um, there's a lot of politicians that studied at ANU. Oh, that's interesting, a lot of yeah. Of, uh, ..that are in very senior roles. Which would make great bribery information during election campaigns. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what they plan to do with that information and, and how they've come to that conclusion, but, um, uh, I, you know, we've, as a former... ANU student and staff member, we've been receiving lots of email updates and um, I think that's yeah. interesting if people are thinking ahead through who went to an institution. Yeah. And just on the individual level, I know that still happens because a doctor um, I know of about two weeks ago got one of those individual ones. So he got an email that had one of his low-level passwords that he uses just for cheap shopping sites and stuff like that um, in the subject line. Oh, wow. and, then he, and the email said, you know, dear whatever, um, we have video of you pleasuring yourself. That was oh, how it said. Oh, and no. we will release it publicly if you don't pay $1,000 in oh, Bitcoin. Oh. And they provided a video. Oh, code awful. and stuff and he you know apart from looking into what the <laughs> hell is this you know he quickly googled and found out that it was a very widespread scam and ignored it and there were no consequences although we've all seen the video no that bit <laughs> i made up there is no video and uh, so it's still hitting individuals yeah yeah it's scary 
Yeah, and I mean, and I know that where I work, we now have training on how to try and prevent clicking yep. on those links and basic cyber training, and it's kind of a new thing we have to really, really take seriously. And all the hospitals, I think, yeah. that weren't attacked also put out emails yeah. straight away that day yeah. saying, just be doubly ca- careful, everyone, be vigilant, you know, th- there's an attack on the go. Yeah. Mm, and interesting. It, and oh. it is interesting, isn't it, as we start to get um, EMR, e- electronic medical records coming up in hospitals and more and more is going online, is having how are we going to be extra sure that that data stays really safe and also that if one hospital gets attacked how do we make sure that's isolated so that doesn't spread to other well you know when we're talking about my health record one of the big things that the it oriented lawyers were coming out with is that uh, we are not sophisticated enough Mm. yet to be having an uh, one of these records because we're still too prone to all this sort of Mm. attack yeah yeah they they, yeah um, they seem to be less keen on actually getting patient information than just being totally disruptive. Yes. Mm. So with hospitals, why they're such a... um, Because energy supplies are also the other target, right? So hospitals, energy supplies and infrastructure in general. But they have had to cancel surgeries. They've had Mm. to cancel bookings because they target the booking systems and so on. Anyway, you're listening to Radiotherapy on a Sunday morning. It's 10.14. I'm Dr. Doolittle. We have our special guest in the studio, Associate Professor Hassan Valley from La Trobe. You've got CyberSue, you've got PanelBeater, and PanelBeater's been keeping an eye on the international news. Been taking a look at Indonesia, Doolittle. My favourite place. Yeah, you and I have got a long history with um, Indonesia. And um, the... um, uh, there were big fires, people might recall, back in 97. There were some in 2014, 2015, and there's some more going on right now. And um, as with anything like this these days, there's a layer upon layer upon layer to the story. There's obviously like the... Sara Lee cheesecake. Yeah. There's obviously the environmental issues um, and the destruction of the forest, the threat to orangutans and other wildlife and so on. But there's, of course, the radiotherapy angle, which is the health impact. Um, and not just localised, not just to some Archer and Kalimantan, but um, but obviously throughout Southeast Asia and even North Australia. Um, just to give a, a sense of scale and, and what, <clears throat> I mean, one of the benefits, if we're trying to do a glass half full um, story, one of the benefits of having the precedent with the fires is now researchers have been able to do longitudinal study on the impact of, um, of these fires. And we can start to see how the current fires might play out if something's not done. So um, just in terms of scale, the 2015, 2.5 million hectares um, uh, were, be- were burnt. And um, it took about $16 billion to redress Right. <sighs> Just to give, put that in scale, that it was more than the cost of rebuilding after the tsunami in right. 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, what researchers have done, they've started to look at um, a variety of health impacts, understanding that uh, when fire burns, particles, microparticles get into the air and obviously lungs are an immediate risk, um, eyes, um, but just uh, general inhaling will get it into organs and bloodstream of all sorts. Um, and in particular, it's been shown that these kids who are now what now twenty years old mm-hmm. from the ninety seven fires, they've had um, uh, stunted growth. They've had lower educational outcomes. Um, there's been uh, even um, uh, uh, life expectancy issues. Um, and uh, from in then looking at the two thousand fourteen um, major um, uh, neonatal and postnatal um, issues um, and fetal deaths. 
Um, from bushfires. From bushfires. Wow. wow. Yeah. Right. I mean, stunted growth and lack of educational mm. opportu- um, outcomes, that just sounds like me, Ben. I wasn't in a bushfire. <laughs> but, but, yeah, and so um, pregnant women um, are the most directly affected in the immediate term. Because you sort of think of that if it's, you know, it's still like, Toxic chemicals, you know, plastics yeah. and, you know, things like Agent Iron or, you know, whatever. But, you know, you'd think being a natural phenomena that evolution over the last 20 million years would have sorted us out on some of those issues. You'd think so. But, you know, it's and it's not when we mention layer upon layer, it's not that natural. There's a there's, you know, the the politics of it is a lot of farmers don't have uh, secure land um, tenure and um, uh, agriculturalists are coming in and taking over. So one way that the farmers can undermine the work of the agricultural is to do some burning. Oh, right. Yep. And um, so that's all at play. Obviously, we're dealing with Sumatra and Kalimantan, which isn't as rich as some other areas of Java mm-hmm. um, or Bali, for example. Um, um, and so it's the poor that are really taking it in the in the neck. Mm. Yeah. And hello to my friends in Java. There we go. It's one of my friends' birthday today. Happy birthday, friend in Java. <laughs> um, that's fascinating stuff. Uh, sorry, there's one other little health link is so there's the particles in the air and what that does, um, but it's also uh, lands in crops, of course, and then enters the food chain. Have we? Uh, question without notice. Have we ever had this sort of study done in Australia? I know after the last, you know, the big bushfires last time, we did some. I was involved in study that followed the psychological effects, but I haven't actually. You'd think having t- done some study in the area, I would have read this up. But I haven't read whether we've tried to look at the um, effects on kids and growth and the um, biological and physical markets. Yeah, I, when I was doing a bit of prep, um, I didn't um, come across uh, any Australian studies on Australian fires. Um, we certainly, obviously, have have a lot of fires. Perhaps nothing quite on the scale of two point five million yeah, hectares yeah, or five million hectares. And when you're looking at those kind of that physical impact, you wonder whether the fires here would have quite that physical impact, yeah. less than the psychological mm. impact. But and it's most profound. And yeah. most of our bushfires too are natural, except for the arson-related ones. You know, unlike <laughs> yeah. like the Amazon at the moment. You know, most of theirs are socio-political too. Absolutely. Hey, um, we better keep moving. It's ten nineteen. You're listening to Radiotherapy with myself, Doolittle, Panel Beater, and Cyber Sue, and our special guest Hassan Valley. We are going to go to to a quick break and a song and then we'll be back to talk to Hass about the um, article he wrote in the conversation um, regarding how you read and evaluate stories about health in the media. Triple R. It's Radiotherapy in the studio this morning. Myself, Dr. Doolittle, Cyber Sue, Panel Beater and our special guest who I'm about to tell you a little bit more as I flick my computer to the right screen. Associate Professor Hassan Valley is an epidemiologist with experience in the analysis and interpretation of health data. His interests span both infectious diseases and chronic diseases epidemiology and he's published over 70 peer-reviewed articles as well as teaching epidemiology at postgraduate level, mostly at La Trobe University. He recently wrote an article about the traps we fall into when we read about medical research. We loved it so much we invited him in. Hass, welcome back yet again Thank to you. the studio. Thanks it's for coming in. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Why don't we um, kick it off? We're all keen to ask stuff about this. Well, let's kick it off, though, with why did you choose to write this article? Um, look, it's a really good question, and there are probably lots of reasons, and there was a bit of a tipping point earlier on this year for me. But, yep. um, you know, we're all obsessed with health, and that kind of drives the interest in health research that's reported in the media. Um, but it's, it can be sometimes very difficult to make sense of 
uh, these health reports and um, interpret what they, they mean for us. And um, I think we all come to these stories with a view of trying to extract um, what does that health finding mean for me? How is that going to improve my health? Because we, we're all pretty self-centred and we all want to live long, healthy lives and um, these stories grab our attention. Um, but there is a tendency for them to get overhyped at times. Um, and I found even with all of my training as an, and, and working in this area, I would read those stories and get a little bit confused as to what does it actually mean? Should I be drinking more coffee or should I be sleeping less and all of those mm -hmm. things? Um, but there was a, the tipping point was, um, and I'm not sure if you guys are familiar, you might have even talked about it. There was a story in, um, I think it was... April, May this year and it was about um, it was from Sydney University and it was about elderberries and how they may affect um, flu symptoms. Did, they uh, didn't call them a superfood, did they? That just drives me no, to distraction. They, oh, they probably did. Superfoods. Yeah. I mean, everything's... I think we've moved past superfoods yeah, now. We're, we're onto ultra superfoods because superfoods are Oh, no. Are boring, that's even so. worse. Um, and, and this was reported really badly. It was actually an in vitro... Um, experiment, if you like, but it was sold in, in the vitro, media. meaning essentially in the lab, yeah, in the test just, tube, not in a person, not yeah, in a not, human, not in not any in a, actual living yeah. organism. And it really involved, you know, cells swimming around in cell media and this elderberry extract being poured onto the cells. I'm being a bit flippant yeah. here, but, but you know, that was essentially what was done. And then things were measured, and it led to international publicity. Um, and um, really the interpretation didn't fit the evidence and, and as a scientist it kind of frustrated me and offended me a little bit and I sort of thought I'd have a, have a bit of a go at trying to give people a bit of a checklist so that they can um, sort of make draw sensible conclusions from um, this sort of research and not be duped. Fantastic. But, and we will, we will get onto the checklist. Do you reckon there's some... There are sort of some out media outlets or some areas of science where they're, the perpetrators are worse. I mean, obviously, like, some magazines are terrible. Some of those health magazines, you know, where they've just got to fill space. And so they just jump on any nonsense thing that sounds cool and, you know, and then it sticks around. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I've had a bit of a think about this and I, it's a really difficult um, there's lots of things going on and I think um, certainly whilst the media, you know, aims to inform, really at the end of the day, the media wants to generate interest and the way you generate interest is to frame things in a negative way. And sensationalise. Mm. Absolutely. Like we don't care if 5%, well, if 95% of people are going to live long and healthy lives, um, that's not a big story. But if 5% of people are going to die a horrible death because of some particular thing. Because of the that, elderberries. Yeah, exactly. Um, were the elderberries meant to be good or bad? Good, I They were supposed to be good, <laughs> yeah. but... Um, what about was, the younger berries? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. There was, there was, I don't know any foods. I don't <laughs> know any... Ages. Yeah, oh no, it's so ages, those fruits. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure it tastes horrible, whatever right. the elderberries are, but um, uh, these things usually do, I find, whenever there's something that's really healthy. Um, but, yeah, I think there's just lots of things going on. So there's the media who are um, – and I actually don't blame the media, to be honest. I mean, it's easy to scapegoat 
just the media and say it's a, a, a media issue. But, um, you know, scientists also have an important role to play and scientists also have their own pressures and sometimes can be seduced into... I think that's a big factor. Yeah. yeah. But by the way, do you ever listen to radiotherapy and think I, I think and think to yourself, that panel beater in CyberSource speaking a load of crap, thank God for Dr Doolittle? Do you ever think that? <laughs> oh, look, I, I'll, I'll think I'll keep my opinions to myself on that. Hey, will and we run that- through the tips before I let, let you guys loose with all your questions? Let's run through the tips. Um, there's five of them. The first one is, has the research been peer-reviewed? What does that mean? Yeah, so peer review really is almost the first step in terms of the scientific process. It's kind of the initial vetting before research is let out into the the you know, the big wide world. And um, whenever we do research, we write it up and we send it to a journal and that journal sends it to a few experts in that field. Independent to you, different universities, mm-hmm. different countries mm-hmm. of it sometimes. Absolutely. And sometimes, bl- and hopefully mostly blinded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I get blinded. These bl- Blinding's common a lot these days. Blind drunk. Yeah. I get that too sometimes, <laughs> unfortunately, but which by the way, health warning, it's not supposed to be good for you. I read in a book and it was peer reviewed. Keep going. That's yeah. number one. So peer review. Peer review. So get sent to experts who review it based on their scientific merit um, and either say this is great or have some suggestions or to improve it or say it's terrible, you know, go back to the lab and do more work. Um, so that's the first step. How do and they know that from reading the paper? If they're reading an article in The Age or The Herald Sun or The mm. Australian or the whatever, though, at The Guardian just being fair and mentioning them all um how do they know can they just pick it from the big journals like obviously if it's in the lancet or the new england journal of medicine or the australian medical journal you go okay that's safe but what if it's in the um journal of obscure elderberries and their cousins yeah it's a good question i it's actually really as you probably guessing it's a hard question to answer because basically most of what you said hopefully is true most of the time you hope that journal articles or articles in good journals will represent good science and also of be of great interest to people but it's you know not- what you could do though i yeah. just thought of this myself yeah. i'm answering my own question i'm sorry <laughs> i just thought of it though is making sure it's published because i hear so many studies where they say it's unpublished data and mm. i just my shoulders mm. drop and i just think oh for God's sakes, why are you what even... What is the point? It, doesn't, it yeah. hasn't even been gone to journal. It hasn't even been second looked at. It hasn't been peer-reviewed. Mm. So at least make sure that it's been published in a journal, even if the journal you've not heard of. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I can share with you the editing process for this article uh, getting published. My um, uh, my line of commentary for that, that part of the checklist was a little bit harsher than what it ended up, it ended up being toned down that you need yeah. to be a bit reserved about... Um, you know, when an article's not been peer-reviewed and mm. not published, but really, if it hasn't been peer-reviewed, it hasn't been done. We don't know if it's of any quality whatsoever. And so. the second one was, has was the study... Can I just uh, throw oh, yeah, a peer-review yeah. note this week? Uh, apropos yeah. of the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology, uh, one of the co-winners was Professor Radcliffe. And in his wisdom, back in his early career he framed a rejection letter from nature nature one of the most prestigious peer-reviewed uh, journals uh, for any scientist um, and so bouncing around the um, uh, social media sphere 
during the week was this Nobel Prize winner with his rejection letter from Nature, which yeah. he's now all, all of a sudden very proud of. It's, um, it's, it's a huge achievement to even get your paper looked at seriously by Nature, I can yeah. tell you. it's um, Getting an article in Nature is a little bit like getting a PhD. It's almost <laughs> that. It, don't you? Yeah, I mean, in terms absolutely. of the effect yeah. on your career, you know, you can't yeah. be a scientist without really yeah. a doctorate. And that's, you know, basically says... That's like it's like an Emmy Award. Yep. Just for the casual um, reader of it, say a, a news article you might find in the Age or Sydney Morning Herald that's referring to research, especially now that we're consuming a lot online. What you might like to look for is a hyperlink offered by the journalist, where they'll refer to a piece of research and they'll offer the hyperlink, and um, you don't need to go and check out impact factor um, matrix and and so on, but just seeing the um, the journal available to you. Of course, you might run into a paywall with some yeah. journals, but... <laughs> you nearly always get the abstract, at least. Yeah. And by the way, when Panel Beta says impact factor, that's all journals are ranked just like um, football teams are at the end of the season. There's a ladder. They all have a score. Impact factor. So the second one, which I've just been changing my screen, is was the study conducted in, in humans? Yeah. In humans. Yeah. So, look, I think <laughs> the, the key thing here is um, it, it's about the implication of this research and... Um, what we really care at the end of the day is what effect is this research going to have on our health and we're human beings. So the only way we can generate or, or um, take seriously evidence about human health is if the study's been done on humans. So at, at one level, it's as simple as that. Um, and it also involves a bit of a recognition of the scientific discovery process. So um, science is, is a process where you have um, preliminary findings <laughs> <laughs> you have preliminary findings. Do little series, <laughs> just join the conversation. <laughs> I was just looking for a series podcast that addressed this very issue to reference it. And my pod, even though my phone's on silent, it turned the podcast on. Apologies, <laughs> listeners, and apology, Hass, for right. disrupting your train of we, thought. We must get Siri on as a guest one day. <laughs> it, was, it really was. That was Sam Harris you were listening to in the background because he interviewed some uh, a Nobel Prize winner about a couple of these very issues recently and I was trying to remember the name of the prize winner and I'm not going to touch my phone to tell you now. Sorry, finish your thoughts. I just assumed it was a cyber attack. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, look, I think... um, Because I guess the the key point I want to make is I'm not... Um, not in any way downplaying some of the more fundamental research that is done on cells or is done on animals, but you've got to understand how to interpret that and you cannot make very confident conclusions about what will happen in a human being yeah. if you haven't studied. Mm. Um, and does it matter how many humans there are in the study? Yeah, look, I mean, that always is important um, and that's that's a whole nother level mm. of critical analysis, um, and um, I guess it's an important point to raise because in putting this checklist together, I was trying to come up with the most simple criteria mm. so that mm, everyone. Sure. It's more of a. Um, I guess I can't think of the, crop, the right the, the right word, but it's about putting the, the research into two piles. Either I'm going to read this and take it seriously and, and use it to inform what I do, or I'm going to like put it in the that's kind of interesting. Vague but entertainment. Yeah, it's entertaining and interesting, but it probably doesn't mean much at this stage. And, mm. and that's, that's where the communication can be done really badly um, at times. Now, the next one was the one that I was really interested in because I believe this is – 
a problem amongst most scientists as well. And is, are the findings likely to re- represent a causal relationship? Or um, This is the big one, and that's the one that I was listening mm-hmm. to. I was listening to this Nobel Prize winner saying that, you know, the majority of the research he looks at, he thinks the scientists are, con- uh, are confusing causal relationships with just mere associations. So what, tell us what this one means. Yeah, look, I, I, firstly, I agree with you totally. I think causality is one of the most difficult concepts and most um, people and even scientists, as you s- suggested, um, really pay lip service to this and have learnt this very superficially um, and it leads to a whole bunch of confusion. Um, one of the things I mentioned in, the, in a previous interview is that I feel like... Um, you know those those superannuation ads with John Wood and at the end of it he goes, you know, past performance is not a predictor for future mm-hmm. performance. I kind of feel like a lot of people don't understand causality and they, they commun- communicate a whole bunch of stuff and Im- imply and infer a whole bunch of things and then just to cover their bases at the end they have yeah. that little disclaimer. I agree entirely. You see it in articles all the time, you know, because there's a standard format for scientific articles, you know, introduction, methods, data. And in the discussion, you know, you restate your, um, your results in the first paragraph and in the second paragraph you say what the um you know the the um caveats are and people it's it's a throwaway sentence and so they'll spend the whole article implying a causal relationship and then they'll have a throwaway it might just be an association when no it's bloody obviously an association and it's bloody obvious that there's no causal relationship in this study because it wasn't set up in a way to it drives me to distraction as you might note from the tone of my voice yeah No, and it's, um, you know, and I guess that the point you're sort of alluding to is the fact that a lot of this research is observational research where you actually um, observe things in people and you look for differences um, and you maybe track them over time. But whenever you see an association in that context, you can never be sure that it's um, not just a correlation, so two variables that are just moving with each other rather than a causal relationship where X causes why and I think the example I used in the conversation article was um, regarding a lot of studies that have been done on coffee and heart disease and so people see that association but when you dig a little bit deeper it's clear that um, and whether this is true still today I'm not sure but um, coffee drinkers particularly heavy coffee drinkers tend to smoke more and um, so that relationship is purely explained by smoking and the other the other really easy example for people to relate to apparently in in um, new york people have looked at ice cream sales and homicide rates and so if you do that analysis you see a really strong association between how much ice cream is sold on the streets of new york and the murder rate and no one would think that ice cream causes murder hopefully quite the opposite because i live near an ice cream shop and you had me nervous for a little while there i'm thinking um, i'm not walking past it anymore well you know it could be potentially scary if you don't understand causality and um but basically it's to do with hotter weather and people there's a really strong relationship between warmer weather and let's uh, whiz through the last two so the team can ask a couple of other questions what is the size of the effect and is the finding corroborated by the studies i think they're both pretty obvious Oh, I don't know. I, I actually think the the size of the effect is is a really big problem. Well, that's an, actually, I just thought of a good example. You're quite right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, this is also incredibly challenging. So the issue here is that 
firstly, human beings don't understand risk, don't understand probability. Our brains aren't wired up to naturally understand this phenomena and we're challenged um, by the reporting of risk in these studies. Um, the other issue is that most health research is reported in terms of relative risk. Um, so, you know, your chances of cancer increase 10% if you drink coffee, etc. that kind of data. Now, our brains naturally over-interpret the hazard when you express something as a relative risk. And I can give you a fantastic example that really highlights the, the extent of this. So I think a couple of years ago, um, it was the International Agency for Research into Cancer, they announced that um, meat and processed meat was in the same category as smoking and asbestos. I don't know if you remember that story. Yeah, I do. Yeah. It went crazy and yeah. it led to all these mm. um, headlines that meat is as dangerous as smoking and everyone went nuts over it. Um, what, what that didn't speak to is the size of the effect. Um, it, 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 it spoke to the, the, the strength of the evidence linking meat and cancer, but not how strong the effect was. But then they went on to give you the effect size, and I think they said it was about 18% increase in your risk of colon cancer or bowel cancer if you had 50 grams of meat a day. Um, which is apparently two rashes of bacon. That's about 50 grams. That, that's I had still... that for breakfast. <laughs> well, there you go. I'll tell you about what your risk of cancer yep. is in a moment. Um, so that still sounds pretty scary. It does, yeah. Like 18% it does, yeah. increased risk of cancer if you eat two bits of bacon. Um, if you express this as a relative frequency and an absolute risk, the story is totally different. And I'll try and paint the picture. If you have 100 people and those 100 people don't eat any bacon or red meat, six of those people will get bowel cancer. Sure. Okay? Yep. Um, that's just because there are other causes of bowel cancer. If you get another 100 people, and this is going to, hopefully this will amaze you the way it amazes me. If you get another 100 people and you force feed them a bacon sandwich every day for the rest of their lives. Quick caveat, you won't have to force me. No, okay. For every day, that's a lot <laughs> yeah. of bacon. Um, you will only get seven out of a hundred so one, one extra person. person so there's two elements mm. of that firstly you're only getting one extra person who's going to get um, bowel cancer and that dose is extraordinary how many people are going to eat a bacon sandwich every other every single day and so if you understand that the perception of that risk is totally different that yeah. is not a headline yeah. now yeah, so, yeah no it's I, amazing yeah. and i forget who the comedian was but who was it who said there is no happier human state than when you have bacon in your mouth and I, that's got nothing to do with your cancer story but it's true we have this, there's so many other examples i hear of that yeah. too but tell us also the last one is the finding corroborated by other studies yeah and i think this one is a bit more straightforward in that the central principle of the scientific method is we've got to be able to reproduce the research um, but probably the most relevant point here is that whenever you're studying studying humans you're studying a complex system there are so many variables just think of how we all differ mm. in this room well i don't eat bacon sandwiches to start with uh, what about I. someone put on our facebook page um shout out to joy on our facebook page that uh, what about the um other big one conflict of interest big farmer who's paying for the i think the point she made was who's paying for the research yeah, absolutely. And I have to say that that's probably one of, you know, in the conversation articles, people can write their comments there. And I think that was one of the comments that came up. And, and I can tell everyone, like with hand on my heart, that was number six, if I could have fitted six. Mm. Um, but I also think um, the most important thing is not whether it was funded 
by industry or there's a conflict. It's, it's, it's actually making sure you're transparent. And yeah. that, that is also what happened with that elderberry um, uh, research finding. They were actually funded by industry and they actively excluded that from their press release, which, which starts to make you mm, really suspicious. question everything that yeah. they're doing. Um, yeah. So I think you need to be transparent. Because there's nothing inherently evil yeah. about getting mo- money from industry, and so I'm a bit I'm a bit of a moderate in in that sense. But as long as you're influenced by it, and as long as you're totally transparent, um, can I torment you and ask for a number seven? Maybe oh. it's got something to do with method, the research method, and maybe you might like to, given your uh, expertise, <clears throat> contrast say epidemiology, which looks at populations of of people, compared to say case study research. Okay, that's a difficult question. Thanks for that. I, um, look, I, I have to say it was really hard to put this list together. And so apart from the first one, which is about peer review, and that speaks to the scientific validity, like how good was that science, the rest of them are about interpretation. So it's about someone being able to read that study and understand um, what does this mean for me as a human being? So we're kind of assuming that if it's peer-reviewed, that the validity of that research is is sound. And also, I mean, I also wanted to pitch this to people without scientific and medical training. Sure. So hopefully they're easy things that people mm. can sort of mm. answer for themselves. Hey, that is amazing stuff. We love that article. That's why we wanted you to come in. I'm sure we could talk for the whole show about it. But we've got to hear about social media and how... It is used in the rubric of self-help from Might Panel be actually Beta. a bit of a tie-end. Might be. Mm. Um, and, uh, but you're listening to Radiotherapy. It's uh, Sunday morning, 10.48. You were just listening to Associate Professor Hassan Valley from La Trobe University talking about his, his article in The Conversation. Look it up. You've also got CyberSue and myself, Doolittle. We're going to have a short break and then we're going to come back and talk about um, that social media topic. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. I'm Dr. Doolittle, we've got panel beta, we've got Cyber Sue, and we've got Associate Professor Hassan <coughs> Valley from Latrobe. And we are over to panel beta for another instalment in his regular series about self-help in various formats, forms, and over the ages. What do you got for <laughs> us today? So picking on social media today and thinking about social media in relation to self-help and things health-related in that regard in a couple of different ways. Um, Taking a look at current research, which is when we look at social media and self-help research, it's, you know, at best maybe just a few years old. So we're still in the early stages. But it basically can be boiled down to four particular areas. There's the effect of social media um, on um, people's sense of self. Right, um, esteem issues, and you know, comparing themselves to others and their photos they see um, being posted on Instagram and the like. There's social media as a source of information um, on self-help. You know, how to deal with, uh, say, mental health or um, diet or what have you. Um, there's the influence of social media on the role of therapy, um, and um, considering how if people are developing trust, either um, warranted or not, with the advice they're they can access through their Google fingers, um, will they actually go and seek professional, personal advice? Um, And then finally, there's the research itself. You know, how can social media be used um, to uh, investigate um, self-help? 
So there's those four areas, and I'll just break them down. I know we're on a, a tight schedule, but I think um, we can tie in a bit of this conversation with the previous segment about how do we know what's legitimate for self-help online and, and what's not. Um, first of all, I looked at a piece of research by the Royal Society of Public Health um, from 2017, and um, they uh, you know, started by acknowledging that about 91% of uh, young people use social media um, in countries like um, Australia, um, UK, uh, United States, Canada, New Zealand, um, but there and there's a dramatic simultaneously there's this dramatic um, uh, rise in anxiety and depression amongst that same cohort. Now here's where we could talk about correlation and causality. Um, it's not to say that social media causes anxiety and depression, depression, but we can't ignore that the um, substantial use of social media um, is occurring at the same time and, as rises in. And just for definitions, rises in anxiety and depression might be rises in the reporting yes. of anxiety mm. and depression without any actual change Quite in right. the amount suffered. Yep, yep. And so the researchers point that out. Um, but uh, provocatively, these researchers called for five, um, for, for three very particular actions. They're lobbying um, for policy change. One, they're calling for heavy usage warnings on social media. So just like you get um, responsible gambling messages or uh, alcohol intake, drink sensibly, they're suggesting that um, social media platforms need to provide provide um, heavy usage warnings. Um, and, you know, so a, like a pop-up message would occur on your screen when the platform recognises you've been scrolling for two hours or something or whatever. Do you get is. on your phone each week? I got a new phone recently. I get on my phone each week and it just comes up automatically my amount of usage for the week. I got that this morning. It's horrifying. Yeah, I don't want to know. No, well, it's horrifying. Yeah. When I looked at it last week and said, that can't be much. That cannot. There are not that many hours in the week. One of my self-help messages has been trying to uh, be better and better at time management. And yeah, so I'm using an app for that, you know. And there's a great irony using apps for self-help on dealing with apps. Um, they're, they're secondly calling for social media to identify users at risk and offer discrete support. So so in other words, um, tailoring algorithms to identify things where self-harm might be. Okay, um, like your Google search, for yeah. example. Yeah. Mm, yep, yep. That's um, a really interesting one. We've got a, There's a whole lot of apps that will do that to monitor for various behavioural problems and things mm. like depression, but you have to consent and sign up to them. Yep. They're not just going to do it in the background and warn you. I have a problem if they're just doing it in the background yeah. and warning me when I haven't asked for the help. Oh, that's right. Who knows why you're researching it? Yeah. yeah. And the third uh, policy change that they're looking for is for uh, social media to highlight where photos have been digital, digitally manipulated. Um, in other words, you know, with the rise of deep fakes online, mm. as well as people photoshopping their own photos to either put themselves in a good light or whatever, um, returning to this concept that if people are comparing themselves to others online, um, that that may trigger um, issues for self-esteem and so Good on. light. My best <laughs> photos are when I'm in a bad light, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> so turning to the second one, which was social media as a source, um, obviously there's a range of platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, um, Snapchat and the, and, the, and the whole lot. That uh, Royal Society study, by the way, identified that YouTube was the most positive in terms of the, um, uh, the study group responding and um, Instagram and Snapchat the most um, negative. Mm, doesn't uh, surprise impact. me. Yeah. Um, 
And full of crap, those ones. I mean, I like them. I like them too. But, you know, they, they're the ones where people are – there's the most image um, sculpting going on. Yeah. Um, and so uh, if you take yourself to YouTube or um, any of the Facebook forums and so on, you can then split those sorts of sources into two. There's the celebrity or the general interest, the, um, uh, the autodidact who gets up there and says, I know the diet for you um, or I know how to address mindfulness for you. Um, and you've got the professionals and the experts who have their, their YouTube channels and so on who are offering um, similar advice. Um, the big themes on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook at the moment around this area are mindfulness, um, diet, especially at the moment in regards to intermittent fasting and keto diets. Um, not so much, you know, five years ago it was all about the paleo and, mm. and carry on. Keto is probably a little bit of an extension of that in some respects. Um, and the other self-help theme um, as treating social media as a source is regards habits and behaviours. You know, things like how, you know, top seven um, behaviours of successful people and um, mm-hmm. things like this or the Wim Hof, Hof method where you're supposed to wake up at 5am and put yourself under a cold water shower no, for 30 seconds and, that. and that's going to, you know, trigger all sorts of uh, health benefits. The popularity sort of increases as the science moves on. Like the science has moved a bit past mindfulness and I think, you know, found mindfulness not to be that much beneficial above basic behaviour therapy. But anyway, we won't Yeah, and it's, and it's moved into, um, like, meditation, hasn't it? And, yeah. and notions of, um, you know, what you might call cognitive behavioural therapy or um, or stoicism or, you know, Buddhist practice. Yeah, you I'm know, totally so. over it yeah. from a research perspective. Yeah. I'm not yep. impressed. Um, and... Um, Racing through this and on to number three, um, the other the other angle is what did I say it was influence of influence social media on the role of therapy on the role of therapy and um, there's some research and commentary around this where uh, a lot of professionals and experts in the early days of social media thought this is great this is a new way to communicate with people this is a way to normalize the language to talk about things for example mental health um so this is uh, a democratization of access to information and advice um that there's you know we can promote our services um we can um we can normalise self-care. Um, so there's that early enthusiasm, which has kind of morphed into now concerns about some of the things we've already spoken about by treating the legitimacy of the sources, um, but also the misuse of of those platforms by whether they be celebrities or, or even experts. Um, um, and that it, it's in turn creating a consumerism that lives online. It doesn't um, go to the personal. And we spoke about in the last segment about the distinction between um, dealing with the generic, with the specific, and obviously personal therapy is personalised by definition, whereas uh, online it's not. Um, time has got to us, uh, <laughs> you Doodle. You know what, too? I know time has got to us. That's a really interesting subject. You know, if it's any consolation, and I'm sure it's not, when I don't leave enough time for the final segment each time and you have to rush the end of it, I feel incredibly guilty as I drive home in the car. I know that's no consolation, um, but that was fantastic. It's such an interesting area, and I love the way in particular that you divided it up so clearly into the four key areas. And we didn't get into the research in social media, but we might pick that up later down the track. For another time. That is great. Hey, uh, special big um, double, triple, quadruple thanks to uh, um, Associate Professor Hassan Valley from La Trobe University, epidemiologist who wrote that article in the conversation. Thank you for coming in. 
all the way from Brunswick to Brunswick. Thank you. It's been great being here. And a special big thanks to CyberStorm and Panel Beta, of course, for all their hard work. Um, we are now going to leave you in the incredibly safe and trusty hands of the Einstein and GoGo crew. Before we do that, though, don't forget, gang, that you do have our social media. We're on everything now, aren't we, Panel Beta? We're everywhere. Tell we're us what a, We're Radiotherapy Triple R on Facebook. We're on Instagram as, um, uh, radi- as Radiotherapy Triple R. Yeah, and yep. we're on uh, Twitter. Twitter, Radiotherapy Triple R. We'll Google it. So jump yep. on board. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.